One of the many passages in Scripture that illustrates the awesome presence of God is found in Exodus chapter 33. Our text covers this whole chapter, 23 verses. I want to start at verse 12 of Exodus chapter 33. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people But you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you've said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I've found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken. For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today that you are a gracious God. You are a holy God. You are a glorious God. And we bow now at your feet as we open your word, and we pray, O God, that you would teach us today. Father, give us a heart that longs to know you as Moses did. Father, give us a desire to follow your will and to to recognize that we need your presence. We need your blessing, O God, upon our lives. And so open these words to us, Father, by the power of your spirit who has inspired these words. For we pray in Jesus name. Amen. There was a man who was called into missions, and he was kind of wondering if he was going to be able to handle mission life. And someone said to him, if you were to go with David Brainerd, would you have any fear of leaving? No, he said, of course not, a man like David Brainerd. Or how about someone like Hudson Taylor? Well, if he went with me, yeah, I would, I'd be ready to go. And he listed a number of great, well-known missionaries. And finally he said, Would you go if Jesus went with you? Ah, yeah. If Jesus goes with me. We speak of God's presence in a couple of ways. One is the omnipresence of God. We say that God is present everywhere. And that certainly is a scriptural teaching, but we also speak of what some theologians call the manifest presence of God. And this deals with God coming to us in a special way, perhaps an extraordinary way, to manifest His presence that causes us to stand in awe of what God is and has done. 
When God chooses to manifest Himself in a special way, it can be in a very marvelous and wonderful way. Give me an give me example. Remember the three Hebrews children? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They ended up in that fiery furnace. And remember what the king said? He said, didn't we put three men into that fire? And they said, yes, O king. It was three. He said, I see a fourth man. And the form of the fourth man looks like the Son of God. So God manifested His presence in a very wonderful way when those three men were facing that fiery furnace. And we love that, don't we? God manifesting Himself in a wonderful, a marvelous way. But there are other times when God manifests His presence in a terrifying way. I think of those three that were rebelling against Moses in Numbers chapter 16. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Remember that story? They wanted to exalt themselves. They said, Moses, you're not the only one that God has spoken to. What about us? So they gathered with their incense that day and they had rebelled against the authority of Moses. And if you remember the story, the earth opened up and swallowed them and covered them. The glory of the Lord appeared. That was the awesome presence of God as well, but it was a terrifying experience. So when we talk about the awesome presence of God, it can be a very wonderful thing. It can also be a very terrifying thing when God comes to deal with sin. In this text, we find three lessons that we learn about the awesome presence of God. And the first one is this. God's holy presence is destructive to the obstinate. God's holy presence is destructive to the obstinate. It wasn't very long after the exodus from Egypt that the Israelites experienced one of the lowest points, I would say, in their history. Moses was up on the mountain just prior to this text, receiving the Ten Commandments. And what were the Israelites doing? They had given their jewelry to Aaron, and he fashioned this golden calf, And they were worshiping this golden calf. So that's the context of this chapter, Exodus chapter 33. Had Moses not interceded for them, they would have been in very, very, very deep trouble. But God answered the prayer of Moses. So now we come to chapter 33 and it's time for the people of Israel to move on. And so we see God's direction. To Moses, look at verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. Verse 2, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Now, at first, that looks encouraging, doesn't it? Okay, they had sinned against God. Moses interceded. God says, okay, move on. I'm going to send my angel before you. But if you read on, there was a very significant problem here. Although the Israelites were still going to the promised land, God said in verse 3, he wasn't going to make the trip. 
Verse 3 says, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. Wow. I'll send my angel, but I'm not making the trip with you, because you are obstinate you might get destroyed on the way. Now, this does not mean that God has trouble with His temper. Okay, let's settle that once and for all. When God brings destruction, it's because He is responding to sin with His righteous indignation. God is a holy God, and He brings about His holy justice And this made it too dangerous for the people of Israel if God went with them. They were obstinate people. And for their sake, God says, it's safer if I just send an angel. Because if I go with you and you continue to be as obstinate as you are, you just might be destroyed along the way. How's that for an encouraging word, huh? Wow. Now, if the word obstinate sounds like a not very positive word, it's because it isn't. If someone calls you obstinate, that's not a compliment. The word obstinate literally means stiff-necked. Like stubborn farm animals that do not want to be controlled. This is what the people of Israel were at this time. They did not want to wear the yoke of obedience to God. Before they had even received the Ten Commandments, they had broken them. What's the first commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. And while Moses is up on the mountain receiving his Ten Commandments, what are they doing? Worshipping a golden calf. And that's why when Moses came down from the mountain, he took those two tablets and he smashed them on the ground. As if to say, here's what you've done. With God's commands, you have broken them. They had quickly turned to other gods, and God was not pleased with them. I realize that this isn't a popular message in our culture today. But the Bible is very clear that God is holy, and He will not tolerate sin. Sometimes He judges very swiftly. We see many examples of that in Scripture where God brought very swift judgment upon sin. Sometimes He patiently waits. But you can rest assured that if there is no repentance, sin will eventually be judged, if not in this life, for certain in the life to come. We ought not think that God is like As someone said, a a grandfather that just winks at the sins of his grandchildren. God is a holy God. He does not tolerate sin. And God's holy presence then to an obstinate people is a warning that God will judge. Does God warn us too? Does this apply to us? You bet it does. Look at Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment. And then if you jump down to verse 31 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. For the obstinate, that's the warning. For those who are unwilling to deal with their sin, that's the warning. That God is a holy God. His holy presence is indeed destructive to the obstinate. Secondly, we notice that God's, and here's the encouraging word, God's gracious presence is comforting to the repentant. God's gracious presence is comforting to the repentant. Now, if you had been with the people of Israel that day, how would you have responded to the news that God was going to give you the promised land, but He wasn't going to go with you? Would you have been upset that it bothered you? I'll give you the promised land. I'll send an angel before you. But I'm not going to go up there with you. Before you answer that question, let me suggest to you, this, this is exactly what some people would want. That God would give them the promised land, but He wouldn't go with them on the journey. Listen to what Philip Riken says. Listen closely. He says, it is shocking, but true. Most people want God to help them overcome whatever obstacles they are facing in life. And they want to reach a promised land. But they are not at all interested in having a personal relationship with the living God. They would be happy to have God defeat all their enemies. And let them into his kingdom, even if he did not give them himself. In fact, this is what some people who claim to be Christians have tried to do. They have made a decision for Christ so they can get into heaven. But they are not living with him as their Savior and their God. See what he's getting at? I want my ticket to heaven. Right? I want fire insurance, as someone put it. But I really don't want God to inter, intrude into my life. I don't really want this living relationship with God day by day because there's some things I might have to change, I might have to deal with, and I really don't want to do that. So I want God to, to promise me the promised land, but I don't really need this this relationship with Him. Just, just give me the ticket to get There are people like that today, aren't there? I made a decision for Christ. I'm not walking with Him today, but counting on a ticket to heaven. So the people of Israel, would they have been upset with that? Or would they have said, wonderful, send an angel, get us to the promised land, and then we can just kind of do what we want. Well, if you look at the response of the Israelites, you get the impression that they weren't going to settle for any blessing apart from God's gracious presence. Look at verse 4. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. 
For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. And verse 6 says, So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now what are these ornaments? Many Bible students believe that taking off these ornaments related in some way to idolatry, the sin of which the people of Israel were guilty at this point. Because you go back to Genesis chapter 35, when Jacob renewed the covenant at Bethel, he told his family to take off the rings which were in their ears, and then he buried them along with their idols. So what the Israelites did here was likely for the same reason, and they did it eagerly. God told them to take off their ornaments, but if you look at verse 6, it says they stripped themselves of their ornaments, indicating how ready they were to get right with God. And here's the key. They didn't just want the blessing of God. They wanted the presence of God. And is there not a big difference? Some people want just the blessing of God, but they don't want the presence of God. They just want the gifts. They don't want the giver. God bless me. God take care of me. God provide a place in heaven for me. I want the blessing but I don't want the presence of God in my life because that might cramp my style. Here it was different. It seems to me that, that they wanted the presence of God. They were willing to deal with their sin here. They stripped off these ornaments as if to say, we, we want You, God. We don't, we don't want to worship these, these idols. We want You. Well, there was at least one man in our text who enjoyed the presence of God. That was Moses. We're given this uh, description of what was his ongoing experience when he used to go out to the tent of meeting. Verse 7, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. There he would go and he would meet with God. And when he went to the, the tent of meeting, it says the people would arise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and, 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 and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Verse 9, when he entered the tent, it says the pillar of cloud would descend and, and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. Verse 11 says, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face just as a man speaks to his friend. Moses wanted God Himself. He didn't want just the blessing. And he had those times where he would go to the tent of meeting and, and he would meet with the Lord. And as he did on this day then, he, he interceded for the people. He made it clear to God that he couldn't lead them alone and he wouldn't settle for anything less than that God would go with them. He didn't want an angel to go. He wanted the Lord Himself. We read the text here, verse 12. He says, Lord, you, you say to me, bring up this people, but you haven't let me know whom you're going to send with me. I don't want an angel. 
Verse 13, Now therefore I pray you, if I found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you. So that I might find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with don't send us up from here. For how then can it be known? That I have found favor in your sight, I and your people. Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? Now, there's something interesting going on here in this conversation, and we don't probably catch it in our English translations. When God says, My presence shall go with you, the singular is used. Moses, you, my presence will go with you, Moses, singular. But Moses wants more than that, doesn't he? The rest of the people, they needed God's presence every bit as much as he did. So he pleaded with the Lord on behalf of the people that the Lord would go with all of them. Notice in verse 16, you see that phrase, I and your people, I and your people. So what is Moses doing? He's, he's interceding on behalf of the people. God, don't just go with me personally. Go with us. Lord, send your presence with us. And that's exactly what the Lord said he would do. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you've spoken. Well, you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Now, that's a change, isn't it? Because earlier, God says, you are an obstinate people. I'm going to send my angel. If I go with you, you might be destroyed on the way. But then Moses stood in the gap. Moses interceded. Moses, as the mediator between the people and, 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 and God, he said, Lord, not just me. Go with us. Go with us, because these are your people too. Now that should cause us to say, now there's a picture of someone, huh? That's a picture of Jesus. Because this is how we are saved. We can't be saved by what we have done. We are too sinful to merit salvation. Our salvation depends upon the pleasure that God takes with our Mediator. Jesus. At Jesus' baptism, what did the Father say? This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am what? Well pleased. So, what does that mean? It means that when we are in Christ, the Father is pleased with us because He is pleased with with Jesus. Let that sink in. The Father is pleased with us because He is pleased with Jesus when we are in Christ. That's what it means to be a child of God. And that's where we need to stand. In Christ. Because you look at our lives, is He pleased with how we've lived this week? Is He pleased with our thoughts and our words and our deeds and our lack of doing what we ought to do? Here's what one author says. 
There are times when we wonder how God could ever be pleased with us. We get weighed down by our sin. We feel like failures. We know that we don't even measure up to our own standards, let alone the perfect standard of God. And then we ask ourselves, how could God ever be pleased with someone like me? Especially since I know that He is not pleased with my sin. The answer, he says, is that God is pleased with Jesus. And therefore, He is pleased with anyone who trusts in Jesus. The pleasure God takes in us is based on the pleasure that He takes in His own beloved Son. This is the only basis on which God is pleased with anyone. Isn't that great? So the gracious presence of God is comforting to those who repent of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. When I stand in Christ, God sees me as if He sees His Son. Is there still work to be done in my life? Work to be done in your life? Absolutely. But our standing, our standing before God, as we stand in Christ, is one of perfection. And God takes pleasure in us only because He takes pleasure in His Son. Praise God for that. So we have God's holy presence. And then we have God's gracious presence. And there's a third presence here, God's glorious presence. And we would put it this way, that God's glorious presence is veiled to the one not yet glorified. God had told Moses that he would grant them his gracious presence and that he would go with them as they journeyed to the promised land. But notice how Moses wanted more. In verse 18, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. We see your holy presence, God. We see your gracious presence, God. But show me your glorious presence. Show me your glory, O God. Now, Moses had seen some of God's glory, hadn't he? Remember the burning bush? Take off your feet, or your feet, your shoes, because you're standing on holy ground, that bush that was burning and not consumed. That's the glory of God. On the mountain, he saw the glory of God as he received the Ten Commandments. At the tent of meeting, there was a sense in which he experienced the glory of God. But, but Moses knew that there was still more. Still more of God's glorious presence. And so he says, God, show me your glory. Notice God's answer. Verse 19, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man can see me and live. 
Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about while my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Isn't that interesting? Moses says, God, show me your glory. And, and God is basically saying to Moses, Moses, you, you wouldn't be able to stand it. You wouldn't live through it. If Moses were to see a complete revelation of God's glory, it would have been so overwhelming, it would have destroyed him. Because God is absolute perfection. Moses was a finite, fallen creature, and as such, he could not see the glory of God and live. And so God was willing to show Moses only as much as he could handle. So he put him in the cleft of the rock and covered Moses with his hand. Our closing hymn is going to give us that picture. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock that shadows a dry, thirsty land. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock and covers me there with his hand. As sinful human beings, we, we could not see the ultimate expression of God's glory and survive. We have not yet been glorified. And as sinful human beings, then God was protecting Moses from that expression of God's glory. That was God's mercy to say to Moses, Moses, you, you could not see my glory and live. So I'll give you just a little, a little glimpse of it. I'm going to shelter you in the rock with my hand. And after I pass by, you can see my back. Just a, a little expression of, of glory. Throughout history, men have longed to see the glory of God. And some have expressed a confidence that this would one day become a reality. Even Job. Remember Job chapter 19? He says, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will take His stand on the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh, I shall see God. After He was glorified. After His body was Resurrected. David expresses that. Psalm 17, 15. He says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Resurrection day. So one day, we will see God in all His glorious perfection, but it won't happen until... We are glorified. We wouldn't be able to handle it. And so we see the glory of God, but it is but it's veiled in some way. It is somehow not fully expressed or we wouldn't be able to handle it. 
But there's coming a day when we will see face to face. 1 Corinthians 13.12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Face to face. Ever wondered what that would be like? To see Jesus face to face? Now we see Him through His Word. Now we see Him by faith. The songwriter put it well, right? I can only imagine. What will I do when I see Jesus face to face? If you don't know Jesus, it's going to be a frightening day for you. I can't think of a, anything worse than to stand before God not knowing Jesus. awful day. But if you know Jesus, it'll be a wonderful day. There isn't anything better than to be welcomed into the presence of the glorious God because of Jesus. So I need to ask you, are you ready for that day? There's only one way to be ready, and that's that's through Jesus. Because when you know Him, you don't have to fear the judgment of God. You can rejoice in His gracious presence today as you await His glorious presence when Jesus comes again. Looking for, Paul says, the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a day that will be. Father, thank You for the hope we have in Jesus We don't want to stand before a holy God without knowing our Redeemer. Thank you, Lord, what you did for us. Thank you for the blood you shed for us. Thank you that you are our mediator, the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice you paid. Thank you for the intercession that you make even now. Thank you, Lord, that... The Father is pleased with us because He is pleased with His Son, Jesus. We pray these things in His wonderful, precious name. Amen.